We are uh, continuing in Second Thessalonians. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we finished up First Thessalonians and moved straight to Second Thessalonians. And uh, so, you know, just a little background. Second um, Thessalonians is sort of a follow-up letter from Paul to the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul's first letter, he uh, encouraged the believers about the coming of the Lord Jesus and what would happen to those believers who passed away um, and uh, where they would be and where, where they would end up and encourage them in the fact that they would be with Jesus, that we'd, be, that we'd meet together when Jesus comes again. And so uh, his first letter centered upon that. And in this second letter, maybe a, six months to a year later, he is again encouraging the Thessalonians in some questions that they had uh, concerning the coming of the end. Um, and as we'll see in this passage, uh, or in this book, uh, Paul emphasizes three things throughout the time together. And last week, uh, we looked at the fact, uh, the emphasis of the internal reality that we are faced with. Uh, we don't like to talk about it much, but there is as much as heaven is real, hell is real. And that is an eternal reality that we must grapple with as a people. And that's exactly what Paul was explaining to the Thessalonians in chapter 1. And in this chapter, uh, Paul is now talking about sort of the timing of things again, uh, encouraging the Thessalonians that the time has not yet come, but it is coming, and that we ought to have the right perspective about its coming. And next week, we'll see that he'll focus on uh, the value of work during this time, during this season of waiting for the Lord uh, to return. Uh, so again, uh, Jesus rose from the dead around 33, 30 or 33 AD, depending on your dating. Uh, Paul is on his missionary journey 15 years later, on this missionary journey 15 years later. He visits the Thessalonians and then uh, writes a letter to them around 50 AD, so you know, a mere 1950 years ago. Um, and now he's writing a second letter to them here in 51 AD. Um, and that's what we're looking at today. So we're going to read chapter 2 of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. If you would, read with me. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends, him a strong, sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false 
in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word to us, your scriptures preserved for us, these texts that are both challenging and encouraging. God, we pray that your spirit would be among us, that you would be speaking to us as we look at your scripture, that you would encourage us with the realities we face in this life, and that you would uh, encourage us with uh, the grace that we have in Jesus. We're thankful for your word. We pray that you uh, would bless it now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, So sort of a a lengthy passage, but a lot of important stuff that is all tied together here. Uh, Paul, again, as as you may have heard, as you you heard this scripture, uh, is encouraging the Thessalonians in this fact that Christ has not yet come back. Uh, and there's a, there's a reason that he is addressing this, and the reason is this, that someone has come among them and told them, in fact, that Christ had already come and that they somehow had missed it. If you look in verses 1 and 2, he says again, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul outright shares, uh, shares with us the issue that is at hand. Someone has come among the Thessalonian church and is, has claimed to be bringing a letter from Paul, has claimed to be bringing uh, knowledge from Paul uh, about the coming of the Lord Jesus and that it has already come, that Paul somehow is telling the Thessalonians that, hey, we missed it. The Lord has already come and we've missed it. And, uh, you know, you should now do such and such. Uh, most likely this, uh, this word or letter or, or speaking by these people was to deceive and manipulate and, and draw them into a different sort of obedience, either to a different truth or to uh, just cultural relevance or, uh, or to something else entirely. And so it was a drawing away of these believers to something totally different. And so the Thessalonians are now shaken in mind and alarmed. And Paul is saying, do not be shaken or alarmed in mind. No such letter has gone out from us. The Lord has not come back. And the remainder of, the, of this chapter, Paul uh, plainly lines out that the coming of the Lord is going to be so obvious. And the events that precede it will be so obvious that there will be no mistaking it by those who believe in Christ or by those who don't. It will be plain to all, and it will be experienced by all and understood, and it will be the final end to things. And so Paul is sharing that with them, that don't worry, the Lord hasn't come yet, 
uh, there are some things that must occur before he comes. Uh, so how does Paul how does Paul share this? Well, um, I don't know about you, but if you think about their, the context of this culture, uh, you realize that you have to uh, subtract yourself subtract from yourself your your cell phone, right? You got to say, uh, I don't have any cell phone anymore. I don't have any internet. Uh, I don't have any telephone. I don't have any TV. And now someone has come and told you that, uh, uh, con- consider this, a, a family member has passed away, right? And someone is now convincing you that this family member has passed away and you have no phone, you have no TV, you have no internet, uh, you have uh, no way to travel quickly to verify these facts. And someone has shaken your stability by saying, that, oh, you know, uh, your father has passed away. He is, he's gone. And they've told you this, somehow trying to deceive you and manipulate you into something else. And you have no way of verifying it. That's the sort of the situation that the Thessalonians are in. These people are thousands away from their, who has been their leader, who brought them to faith, Paul. And uh, these people are coming in and saying, uh, the Lord has already come and, uh, and you've missed it. And they don't have internet. They can't look it up on the internet or, or call Paul on their cell phone or find it on the TV or, or anything. They have no way to verify, no telephone uh, lines, no, not, not even hard lines, you know? None of them are there. The only thing they have is messengers to walk and ride horses and stuff back and forth. And so verifying this information is very difficult. And so there's a long uh, delay in sharing accurate information. And so... Uh, so, so this is what the Thessalonians are dealing with. And so in this follow-up letter, it's been six months to a year after the first one, uh, Paul is saying, no, do not worry. Uh, Christ has not come, and I will tell you exactly why that is true. Paul says this, that uh, there are three things that are basically going to occur. And the first is this, that there's going to be a period of restraint. Okay? There's going to be a period of restraint in which we are living currently. The Thessalonians then and us now, there's a period in which there is a restraint on, uh, on the coming of the lawless one and thus on the coming of the Lord. After the period of restraint, there will be a rebellion. Paul lines it out clearly. We'll look at it a little closer uh, in a moment. But Paul lines out plainly that there will be a rebellion which will be observed by all mankind. So there will be a rebellion. Uh, There's going to be a period of restraint, then a period of rebellion. And then finally, there's going to be a swift victory uh, of the Lord in his coming. And it will be plain to all that he has come in that time. So three things, uh, a time of restraint, a time of rebellion, followed by a time of retribution from the Lord, a distinct victory from the Lord, one that, as you look at the passage, is uh, so um, so understated in its uh, in its length that you can't you can't describe it more more uh, better than how Paul describes it here. It is plain to us that that Jesus' victory is going to be so decisive and easy for him uh, that that it will be plain that, that Christ is Lord and he is king. There is no one who can even come close to challenging his authority, his power, and his might. And so that's what we see here uh, in the passage. Okay, so the first thing that we see is that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians that, that uh, 
first Christ hasn't come and that the man of lawlessness must come before that happens. But he says first that the first thing that's going to happen chronologically is that there's going to be this period of restraint. And so in verses 6 and 7, he speaks of this. He says, uh, we'll start in 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, that is the man of lawlessness, uh, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who is now restraining it will do so until he is out of the way. <clears throat> and so our question is a couple things. Uh, what is the mystery of lawlessness? Uh, and who is it that is restraining uh, the man of lawlessness from coming. So there's both a mystery of lawlessness that is at work currently in this time of restraint, and there is a man of lawlessness who will come before the coming of the Lord. And uh, Paul is saying that there is this time uh, where the man of lawlessness or where the mystery of lawlessness is being restrained uh, to a degree, and uh, there is a time when that restraint will be removed. And so our question is, what is that thing that is restraining the, full, the fullness of lawlessness to come and the man of lawlessness to uh, come be, be revealed. And uh, there are several ideas about what this could be. Uh, some have suggested that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is somehow the, the thing that is restraining lawlessness from its fullness. Um, the problem with that is that how could we possibly believe that if, if the Holy Spirit is somehow to be removed? I don't think the Spirit is going to be removed in any sense uh, and so that's a difficult one to deal with. Uh, some other belief is that the restraining one is actually Paul and his ministry. Um, and that's sort of difficult to deal with too because uh, maybe in their current time that was the case, uh, but the, the message is actually to the whole church and just not the Thessalonians. So it is greater than Paul. Um, and so the best and, and most widely held view actually is that the restraining one upon lawlessness is actually the state. And so the governing authorities are actually those that are restraining lawlessness in our world. Uh, we know from Scripture that, that uh, the Lord has set up governing authorities for a purpose, uh, to, to bring judgment upon evil, right? And to uh, their intent, they are intended to restrain evil in every way. And so governing authorities are set up so that order can be established in our lives and that those who commit crimes against us can be, um, uh, can be prosecuted accordingly. And so uh, the first thing that government authorities are, are to do is to restrain evil. Their role is to protect and uh, to protect people from evil and serve people that they are in, uh, in uh, authority over. And so uh, the, the, the restraining figure is actually governing authorities throughout humanity. In the Thessalonians' time, that governing authority was the Romans. Now, now was the, were they a perfect governing authority? No. Has there ever been a governing authority that has been perfect in their application and their intention of doing what God has called them to do? No, that's not the case. But there is this restraining that the governing authorities has the role of doing. And so... Um, we can see that in our world that, that restraint is a broken one. 
It is one that is mixed in with people with human emotions and uh, human sin who use that structure for their own, uh, own benefit and gain. Uh, and so we see that even in the restraining, it is imperfect. And so while there is this restraining, this mystery of lawlessness continues to occur. This lawlessness is already at work, verse 7 says. And so uh, there is this period of restraint where the state is somehow, in some way, stepping in and, and keeping complete lawlessness at bay. And what Paul is saying here is that there is going to come a time when that restrainer, that, that, uh, the role of the state being a restrainer against lawlessness is going to be removed entirely. And though the structure may still be there, the lawlessness will reign. There may be some fragment of uh, legal system still in place, but in actuality, lawlessness will reign. And so that's what Paul is saying, that, that currently there is a restraint on lawlessness, and that restraint is our governing authorities that are in place. Uh, but in the future, that restraint is going to be removed, at really probably at the will of the majority of the people. That restraint is going to be removed and changed so that the, the government is no longer fulfilling its call to restrain evil from affecting its people. And so uh, Paul is saying that there is a period of restraint and that restraint is going to be removed at some point. And so the first thing in the timeline of events that he's sharing with Thessalonians is that, hey, listen, there is a government that is restraining lawlessness in this place. And the man of lawlessness cannot come until that restrainer is removed. So the first encouragement to them that the Lord has not come yet is that there is a restraint upon evil in the world, and that is being uh, done through, uh, through the governing authorities, albeit in an imperfect manner. Okay, uh, So there's this period of restraint. When that restraint is removed, what we see now is that rebellion will follow. Complete rebellion, fullness of rebellion will occur. And that's what he's sharing with the Thessalonians, is that this period of restraint will exist, and, and I believe that we are still in that period of uh, restraint. Um, and at some point, that restraint will be completely removed. Uh, the state will no longer function in any capacity of restricting lawlessness, but rather lawlessness will reign in the land. And at that point, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So while in a general sense, uh, government is restraining evil, the fact is that is slipping more and more and more. And so that's why there's this mystery of lawlessness. What is the mystery in it? Well, it, 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 the mystery is that while it seems there is law, those laws are being chipped away in their effectiveness at restraining evil. And so this mystery of lawlessness prevails even while there is this restraint in place. But once that time is done... Once that uh, restraint is completely removed, what will happen is that a figure, a real figure, a historical figure will come forth, a man of lawlessness who will lead the entire world in this rebellion, who will, be set, who will set himself up as God. We'll read some of the, the passage again uh, to see what we're talking about here. Um, again, verses 3 to 8. Let's read that as a whole again. It says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, that day being the day of the Lord, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So who is the man of lawlessness? He is the son of destruction. 
he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or every object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God and he proclaims himself to be God. Okay, this is a figure that at the, when the restraint is removed from the world, this figure will come forth. And his nature is described plainly here. Exalt himself above every God. Take his place in the temple of God. Uh, he will be the son of destruction. And he will proclaim himself to be God. Um, so there are a, a lot of pieces there, but clearly this figure is going to be one of extraordinary pride and boasting in himself and his uh, global authority, his universal authority. He is going to set himself up in the temple of God. He will proclaim himself to be God. Um, there's a question that we sort of were talking about on Wednesday at uh, a community group that uh, what is the temple of God? And uh and it's interesting, I, I haven't gotten to go as deep as I want to go in studying this particular passage on that, uh, on that note, but uh, there are a couple of views, and uh, a couple of major views. Uh, the first view is this, that the temple of God is actually a physical temple of God, that, uh, that, the, that the temple of the Jews will be rebuilt, and that, uh, that somehow this man of lawlessness will actually physically sit on the seat of God uh, and in uh, an abomination to uh, to that, and so depending on your eschatological view of history, um, you may or may not believe that the temple will be rebuilt. Okay, and so if you hold to the temple being rebuilt, that's probably how you interpret this scripture: that the the man of lawlessness will sit upon the seat of God as uh, proclaiming himself to be God. And so that is one view. The second view is this: uh, that uh, that as he takes his seat in the temple of God, it is more of a figurative statement about his uh, sitting down in authority as God. Uh, it's interesting as, you know, today is Palm Sunday and this message isn't totally focused on Palm Sunday, but in thinking about who uh, proclaiming yourself as king, we can look to the story of Palm Sunday. As Jesus is coming into, uh, into Jerusalem, he isn't riding on a horse in some sort of battle, Rather, he is sitting on a donkey in complete authority. He's not coming to battle. He's coming as the reigning king. He is coming into the city to be proclaimed king. He is sitting because no one is there to challenge him. And so uh, the man of lawlessness in that way, in a figurative sense, is sitting in the temple of God and saying, I am above all gods. I, in fact, am God. And so there are those two views of how it could be interpreted. Uh, is it interpreted as a physical sitting in the temple of God uh, and, and thus a rebuilding of the temple? Or is it sitting in a figurative sense uh, as proclaiming himself as God and sitting in the temple in that manner? Um, I'm not fully decided on that, so I'm not going to preach specifically to you about that. Uh, but, that but what is clear is this, uh, that, that Paul is proclaiming that the man of lawlessness will come. And this is an encouragement to the Thessalonians because again, the issue is someone has come among them and said, the Lord has already come and your hope is gone and you have misplaced your hope and Paul has led you astray and now you ought to do X, Y, Z. We're not even sure what X, Y, Z is, but they probably had a motive in lying, right? If you're lying, there's probably a motive in it. So they're lying to the Thessalonians and there's a motive in it. That motive we're not sure of. So, um, 
So Paul is saying, listen, first of all, there's, there's a period of restraint, which we're still in. Second of all, uh, as you know, and as I've told you before, there will be a culmination of this rebellion, and that rebellion will be actually experienced in a historical figure, the man of lawlessness. He will uh, be a fulfillment of this lawless uh, culture that you exist in, and he will embody it entirely, and in fact, he will declare himself to be God. Uh, And so going on, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, uh, so that he may may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. (laughs) And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul says, there's a time of restraint. Lawlessness is reigning. That lawlessness will, lawlessness will culminate in this man of lawlessness who will declare himself to be God and appear to have all authority, universal authority in the world. And then Jesus is going to appear and he's going <sighs> to breathe on him and he will be defeated no no huge army no huge battle just the presence of the lord will come and gone this man who seemed to have all authority and power who seemed to be leading the world in lawlessness and and evil is now vanished with the breath and presence of the lord This, again, is an encouragement to the Thessalonians that, listen, there's a time of restraint. The Lord hasn't come. There's a time of rebellion that will come. The Lord hasn't come yet. And when the Lord does come, you will know it. Because this man of lawlessness will be defeated by the breath of the Lord and his presence there in his coming. So uh, there's there's a victory that will come in Jesus and, and that is exactly what Paul is saying, encouraging the Thessalonians in, is this, uh, that, that the Lord has not come, and when he comes, you will know it. It will be plain. These things must occur in this particular uh, general, I guess, general order. Uh, and, and when Jesus comes, you will not be able to mistake it, because he will come uh, decisively. Paul goes on a little further to describe uh, how, how they will know that, he, that, he, that he's coming Uh, In verses 9 to 12, he says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in in unrighteousness. Why is this an encouragement to the Thessalonians? Because the Thessalonians are seeking to live righteous lives in Christ. And Paul says this, Paul knows them to be lovers of the truth, who desire to know the truth and be set free by it in Jesus Christ. And so he is saying to them, the coming lawless one is by the power and activity of Satan, 
false signs and wonders. It comes with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And why does it come upon them? Because this, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Those who are perishing have chosen to delight in evil and ignore truth. Whenever we uh, place our delight in that which is sinful, we are uh, placing our delight in that which is untrue of who God made us to be. Uh, The fact is God made us to be in a particular way. He made marriage in a particular way. He made children in a particular way. He made operation in the church in in a particular way. He made these things in a particular manner. He made our neighbors in a particular way that we ought to love them as we love ourselves, even if they're our enemy. These things are made in a particular way. And Paul says, when we devote ourselves to evil, we're devoting ourselves to an untruth. Again, he says, um, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so Paul is saying, you are those who do love the truth, who do, who will be saved because you do love and hold to the truth. These are those who will uh, be uh, dece- who have been deceived uh, by the coming of the lawless one because they uh, have followed these, this power and false signs and wonders. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Again, it says, uh, and this is a very difficult passage, but verses 11 and 12 say, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul says that in this ending time, this time of rebellion and time of lawlessness, will come a strong delusion from the Lord. Um, And this delusion is uh, somehow from the Lord, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around that a bit, but it is for this purpose, to show all the decision that all have made. So the fact is that uh, there are those who are devoted to this lawlessness and unrighteousness, and they've made a decision not to love the truth. And God now sends them a strong delusion to show all that they have chosen this untruth. The picture that I saw in this as I was studying was, uh, was actually the conquest of Israel. Um, when The fact is that when, when Israel came and, and conquest the land, uh, they were coming to a people who had devoted themselves to the service of evil, the Canaanites. They had devoted themselves to unrighteousness, and the coming of the people of Israel was a judgment upon the Canaanites and their, their, uh, their serving of false gods. And so as the Jews come in to take the land, they give all who are there a choice. You can either bow down to God, the one true living God, or you can face destruction, the judgment for your sin. It was a, a, a line in the sand, so to speak, right? You are either with the Lord or you are verifying your choice that you are against him. And this is the moment. Your judgment has come. The day is here. You must decide. And so Paul uh, is in, a, in the same way saying this, that in the end times, uh, God is going to come with a delusion that is going to distinctively show that you have, some have chosen to serve evil and untruth, 
and some have chosen to serve good and to serve truth. And that will be plain. And so he's saying this to the Thessalonians, saying, listen, I know you to be lovers of the truth. When this strong delusion from the Lord comes, you will be on this side serving truth, and you will see all those who were serving untruth and delusion. So there are those that are willingly deceived who will be shown as much in this time. And so Paul, again, encourages the Thessalonians in this fact, that there is a period of restraint, there's a period of outright rebellion where the man of lawlessness will come, uh, there is a strong delusion that will come and, and basically show us who the sheep and the goats are, make it plain to us, right? Uh, and then the coming of the Lord will be there, and this man of lawlessness will be defeated with the breath and appearance of Jesus. No challenge whatsoever. Jesus in ultimate victory with no, uh, no fighting at all. Just the breath of his mouth and the appearing of himself, and the man of lawlessness will vanish and be gone. So this is an encouragement, really, to the Thessalonians as, as they, at the beginning, Paul started out saying they are apparently shaken in mind and alarmed by the things that uh, this group has told them. And Paul is saying, listen, do not be fearful. Do not be afraid. The Lord has not come yet. Many things are to occur before he does come, and you will know those things plainly if you are there to experience them. It, as it turns out, the Thessalonians didn't experience them, right? We're thousands of years later, and it hasn't come in its fullness yet. We've seen particular manifestations of it, but it won't come in its fullness until these things occur. So we are, ourselves are also encouraged, right? That the coming of the Lord has not happened, but that it is going to happen, and that these will be the signs of its coming. An increase of lawlessness culminating, culminating in a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself as God, and who will subsequently be completely defeated without any struggle at all by the Lord Jesus and his coming and appearance. So Paul, after explaining all of this, encourages and strengthens uh, the, the Thessalonians with some truths that they need to hear. I don't know about you, after you hear sort of all that heavy, you know, end times, thinking about delusions and and uh, lawlessness and a man of, uh, it's very heavy to think about that. And we were talking about it earlier, right? Um, but Paul ends this passage with an encouragement to the Thessalonians in their faith. He says this in verses 13 to 17. And just listen closely here. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by His Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. How do we know that we are standing in the victory of Jesus? You see those words throughout his encouragement and his prayer. You are chosen. You are sanctified. 
You have believed in the truth. You have eternal comfort. You have good hope in grace. These things are given unto the Thessalonian believers. And as Paul closes, he encourages them in the things that they know. They have been deceived about things that they do not know. And now Paul encourages them in the truths that they do know. You are chosen. You are sanctified. You have believed in the truth. You have eternal comfort through Christ. You have good hope in His grace. You stand in victory with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Despite any deterioration around you in your society, the lawlessness that is increasing, despite these things surrounding you, you stand in victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are chosen, sanctified, given eternal comfort and good hope in grace. Thanks be to Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has provided such things. Let's pray. Hosanna, Hosanna. Our God saves. Thank you, Father. You have saved us. We stand in your eternal comfort and your good hope and grace. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we stand bold in our righteousness through him. There is no lawlessness that we ought to be discouraged by, for our king is the victor. And God, right now we speak that truth over our brothers and sisters across the world who we prayed for earlier and pray for now, who face daily persecution for their belief and faith in you, who are no doubt shaken by the lawlessness around them and by the difficult circumstances they face, we pray they would feel the eternal comfort and good hope of grace that is in you, Jesus. And they would be emboldened by the victory they have in the Lord. We pray the same for us that this week as we go about the things that you have called us to do and accomplish, that we would not be discouraged by maybe the drudgery of work or the things that you've called us to accomplish or the things, the circumstances that are coming against us. But rather we would stand in the victory we have in the Lord. They would know that you are coming and in your coming there will be swift judgment and that those who stand for the love of the truth, the love of your grace, have eternal comfort and hope in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would bring more people to such hope, to such grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.